Hey, listeners, Tanner here with a little correction from the editing booth. During this episode, I refer to the HMAS Voyager colliding with the Frank E. Evans, when in fact it was the HMAS Melbourne. Listen back to episode 24 to hear the full story of the Melbourne and her collision with the Voyager, as well as the bonus episode we did about the Melbourne and the Frank E. Evans. Thanks so much to the listener who pointed this out, and now on with the show. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Beyond the Breakers, a podcast about shipwrecks, loss, and lessons learned from maritime disasters. I'm Tanner, and we've got a really great episode this week. But before we jump in, we want to say thank you to a few new patrons. Um, So we want to say thank you to Joe, Rasmus, Mark, Nate, and the Ghost Story guys. Um, So we greatly appreciate all of the support, and we're excited to keep putting out some good bonus material for you. Uh, up on patreon yeah give uh give the ghost story guys a listen if you haven't i know we've uh, i think referenced them a few times on the show that's one of the podcasts that really got us into podcasting as something that we wanted to do brennan and paul are really great storytellers and they're just a lot of fun to listen to that's one of the podcasts where you definitely don't mind the banter um they're just very interesting people a lot of cool stories check out the ghost story guys Uh, So our lineup is a little bit different for this episode. Taylor is occupied doing things. I think he's doing kid stuff. That takes up a lot of his time. Lovely kids, but they do distract him from podcasting occasionally. Joining me today is Jamie from Old Shipping Lines over on YouTube. So welcome, Jamie. Thank you very much for having me. It's an honor. Yeah, this is very awesome. Um, this was this was great. Uh, you suggested, you know, a, a story for the show a while ago, uh, I think it was, and so I'm glad we finally had a chance to get you on the show. Yes, I'm too. very excited. If you don't mind, if you want to tell the listeners a little bit about your YouTube channel, because it's really cool. Thank you. Um, well, it started. Uh, it, it's it's a pretty crazy story. Uh, the channel has been created in 2020. Uh, it, it, it's a very funny story. Um, me and some friends in the Netherlands, where we where I live, uh, we had a group, a WhatsApp group, where we would talk about ships. And uh, a friend of mine, he started to uh, post stuff on Instagram, like ships, pictures related. Um, I started to do the same. He started to do a YouTube channel. I started to do the same. <laughs> uh, what I try to do with my YouTube channel is um, I want to keep the ships that I post uh, not that known mm-hmm. because there are many YouTube um, channels that post very much videos like uh, talking about Titanic and Lusitania mm-hmm. and the Empress of Ireland, which is cool, of course. I enjoy that very much. But I wanted to, um, with my own channel to have something of my own. So I try to shed a little bit light on the ships that are lesser known. Yeah, that's awesome. In many ways, we we tried to do similar things on our show too. Um, you know, occasionally, yeah, covering those big ones. But Taylor and I talk a lot about how the the really intriguing, really gripping stories are those ones that are, are not as covered and not as known about. So that's, yes. that's really awesome. Um, I highly recommend checking out Jamie's videos. So another thing we normally do at the beginning of the show 
Uh, we do a little media check-in. So, Jamie, have you have you watched or read or listened to anything interesting recently? Uh, this week has a little has been a little bit hard because I had to work very much and uh, I had to get driver's license. Oh, nice! I got a book in which I'm very interested. It's a called it's a book about the USS uh, Indianapolis. I say I think I say correctly. Uh, my English is not the best, so sometimes it's a little bit. It's certainly better than my Dutch. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, but um, it's a book about the USS Indianapolis, and uh, it talks a little bit about her story and majorly her sinking through the eyes of the crew and uh, the lawyers who were involved with the trial, and also even the uh, Japanese U-boat captain who actually sunk her. So it's very interesting. It's a very, I highly recommend it. I really do. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. Um, I, I haven't read a ton about the Indianapolis. I know the general story, but yeah, uh, the more, more details would be awesome. Mm. Um, let's see. For me, I have been, I've been actually rereading a book. I've been rereading the first book in the Malazan Book of the Fallen by Steven Erickson uh, called Gardens of the Moon. Uh, actually, after we finish recording here, I've got, I've got a... Uh, a book club meeting uh, <laughs> where we're going to talk about it. So I've been rereading some of that, you know, obviously doing some stuff to prepare for the episode. Same here. I had a lot of actual real work to do at work this mm. week, which sometimes isn't the case. Uh, but yeah, I, you know, go figure. I had to actually try hard at work uh, this <laughs> week. Uh, so yeah, all good stuff. And uh, we've got a, a really fascinating story to talk about mm. here. We're here to talk about the Admiral Nakimov. This is one that Jamie already has some experience talking about. Uh, so, Jamie, I'll let you get started with the story. Thank you very much. So, uh, the SS Admiral Nakimov was firstly a German liner. And when she was a German liner, she was known as the SS Berlin for the German company, the North German Lloyd. Now, uh, for some of you, the company might sound very familiar. Um, they're also the company that owns later the SS Europa and the SS Bremen. Uh, the Berlin, she was built by the Bremer Vulkan Company in Bremen, Germany. And she was completed in September 1925. She measured 174.3 meters long and 21 meters wide. And she was fitted with two Point three cylinder triple expansion engines, which would run a top speed of up to 16 knots. She was capable of carrying 1.100 passengers and measured in at 17.053 cross registered tons. So she entered service in mid-September 1925 for the company, the company's Bremen to New York service but soon made headlines in the newspapers when she rescued 10.494 gross ton vestries of the Lamport and Holt Limited. Um, did you know the ship, the SS Vestris? I had never heard of this one. It's one that Taylor might know of. He he tends to have more of a general knowledge of, of some of these ships. Yeah. It's not one that I've ever heard of. What is very interesting with the ship, the Vestris itself, is that um, there, are actually, there are actually pictures of uh, when she was sinking of passengers uh, trying to get in lifeboats. 
So it's very cool to see, at least for me. That's really fascinating because anytime any of these older wrecks are caught on video is always fascinating because it's just not as, as, you know, now it's easy to catch something on your cell phone if you see it. But, you know, at at the time, it was much more difficult to to really have video. It reminds me when we talked about the Austro-Hungarian battleship Veribus Unidas, and how one of her sister ships, when she went down, um, you know, it's one of the rare early video recordings of of, of a battleship sinking. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's that's a that's a really fascinating story. When the Berlin was rescuing the passengers of uh, the SS Verstris, she and two other merchant ships, as well as the U.S. battleship Wyoming, assisted in the rescuing of the remaining survivors. Now, in 1932. The ship underwent a refit, which reduced her capacity down to 879 and remained on the North Atlantic service and cruises to the West Indies. She soon changed departures to New York in Cook's Haven and was later chartered by the Nazi party in 1939 for the Streng Fru Joy program as part of the German labor front set up in 1933 and used as a tool to promote Nazism to the German people. Jumping in here, uh, it's interesting to bring up the Strength Through Joy program, which I don't know that it's super you know, widely known about you know, in, in the US. Um, mm. We will, on the show, definitely have to talk about it again when we talk about the Wilhelm Gustloff, because we, we definitely will have to cover that at some point. Um, but yeah, it's a uh, it's interesting to see this program sort of tying together some of these older ships coming out of Germany. Yeah. Um, I also made on my channel, I actually made a, a video called uh, the KDF fleet in which I and a friend of mine, uh, Skybet, uh, we talked about each ship uh, that actually was part of the Strength Through Joy program. Mm-hmm. So including the Wilhelm Gustloff and the uh, Berlin what it basically was is that the Nazis, they would go to a German port and they would give a kind of letter like, we are taking over your ship for our program. And they would sell cruises for very cheap to the German people to like promote the German idea of Nazism. But later in World War II, it didn't go well. They disbanded. <laughs> but. Right. And uh, just to clarify, KDF is Kraft durch Freude. Yes, Kraft der Freude. Making sure I remember my my little bits of German here. (laughs) Um, She was laid up in the winter of 1938 before making her last cruises in May 1939. The ship was requisitioned by the Kriegsmarine on August the 23rd, 1939 and would service in the Norwegian waters. Berlin continued to be used as a transport in the Baltic Sea. And when not transporting in the Baltic, she would be stationed in Copenhagen as a floating hospital. Now, on January 31, 1945, the ship was transporting refugees when she struck a mine and had to be under tow when she struck another mine and sank at 23.53 hours in shallow waters. Any salvageable equipment was removed on 5 February, and the ship was virtually abandoned after that. So that that is actually basically where her life as a German ship ended. Now, after the war, the Soviets had taken possession of the wreck 
and work began as early in December 1946. However, when the ship was partially raised in early 1947, an unknown explosion occurred, sinking the ship once more and almost crushing a diver who managed to escape. Um, This is kind of some foreshadowing for closer to the end of our story, when we will see that this ship will continue to be dangerous for divers. The Soviets made a second attempt on September the 17th, 1947. And this time, they were successful. And by this point, the ship had already received the new name, the Admiral Nakimov. Restoration work started in 1949 and would last eight years and was finally delivered to the Black Sea Shipping Company in May. So I... This, the company itself, the Black Sea Shipping Company, I've never actually heard of them before. I don't know if you have. I'm trying to think because I know we we had a similarly named company when we talked about the Dalny Vostok, but I don't know for sure that it's the same company. I'm, I'm sure there's a few maybe that have similar names. So yeah, I'm I'm not totally sure about that one. In May 1957, and placed to service in the Black Sea from Odessa Botum route and would carry an average of around 1,000 passengers per voyage. She remained as the flagship of the company until future ships entered service. Now, in 1962, the ship would be used as a transport for soldiers to Cuba during the Cuban Missile Crisis, where her service was rough, but went without any political conflict. She would continue her regular service after the crisis, after the crisis was averted, and would continue service for the next 24 years. There's some interesting video I know that you had shared in the Google Drive of, of her arriving in Cuba, I believe it was, um, mm-hmm. you know, being welcomed, kind of big fanfare. Also, when I, when I always looked at the video of her arriving, I think in my time, if I was there, I would gladly have stayed a night on such a ship. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's a very nice ship. She's not too big, not too small. In my eyes, she is just uh, perfect size. <laughs> now, on we move on to the incident of her actual sinking. On August the 31st, 1986, the ship would make her last departure, departing from Novo... I'm, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not good with Russian names. Novorossiysk. En route for Sochi, with 897 passengers on board and 346 crew. She was scheduled to push away from the dock at 10 p.m. And she was actually already moving with the help of a tug when the order came for her to stop. She was being delayed on account of some rather important passengers. These were KGB Major General Krikunov, his wife, their daughter, and their eight-year-old grandson. Krikunov was the head of the KGB in Odessa. When I saw that listed, I was thinking, like, it's not every day we see a ship whose departure is delayed just for, you know, one family. Mm. But at the same time, I feel like the head of the KGB in Odessa is probably someone that you hold the boat for. (laughs) (laughs) Just imagine if you wouldn't hold the boat. Yeah, I feel like the consequences of having him miss his, you know, his fun vacation trip with his family probably wouldn't be good. Now, the documentary Admiral Nakimov, Save Our Souls, states The general delayed Admiral Nakimov all of 10 minutes, 
but these minutes would prove fatal. Quoting from Karablee.net, with light shining, the liner Admiral Makimov left. I'm so bad with Russian. <laughs> Novorossiysk. There you go. You're better with Russian. On the ship, there was music and dancing. On this last carefree summer evening, the town celebrated the onset of autumn. Those on board the liner passed their time happily. However, just after a few minutes from departure, the ship's pilot noticed the 18.600 ton bulk carrier Pietro Vasev, which was built in Japan in 1981 and acquired by the Russians in 1983. The pilot aboard the Admiral Nakimov radioed the Pietor Vasev. However, they responded, Don't worry, we'll pass clear of each <laughs> other, to which delighted the captain of the Admiral Nakimov left for his cabin, leaving the second officer in command. <laughs> so it's, it's always happening that they say, Oh yeah, we'll steer clear of each other, but at the end they never do. Yeah, how many how many of these collision stories where they're in communication do we hear, you know, oh, no worry, no problem. It reminds me a bit of when we talked about the HMAS Voyager in Australia and some of the issues that she had, or, or rather that other ships had with her, um, her two collisions she was involved in. And it is very strange when you see these stories where there is radio communication. You know, it's it's not like they don't see each other. They know they're there. They're in communication. And yet, what we're about to talk about still <laughs> happens. So Now, the captain of the Pietor Vasev didn't change course, being confident that they would pass each other. The Admiral Nakimov would radio the oncoming ship multiple times, requesting that they change course. Eventually, the Pietor Vasev altered course 10 degrees to starboard. However, the disaster was already set. At 23.10 hours... The second officer yelled out on the radio, immediately reverse full stern, as it was clear that the freighter was headed directly for the passenger ship. Now, leading up to this, Chudnovsky, I said it right, the officer left in command on the Nakimos bridge can be heard saying, Pietor Vasev, what are you doing? Reverse, you agreed on the pass. I think this is very interesting. It's it's one of those, like, this is like the true breakdown moment in the story. Anytime you've got a guy yelling over the radio, what are you doing in a story like this? This is the problem moment here. It, it, it kind of makes me think what they were doing on the bridge of the Pietor Vasev. If they said, oh, yeah, we're going to steer clear of each other. Did they actually give the order to stay clear? As the engines of the Pietor Vasev roared as her engines were thrown into reverse... The Admiral Nakimov turned hard to port. However, the efforts of both ships were futile. At 23.12 hours, the Pietor Vasev, at a speed of 5 knots, rammed into the Nakimov, which was still in motion, causing a hole of 84 square meters, which opened the boiler room and the engine room to the cold water. Her lights went out almost immediately on impact, awakening passengers below decks in the dark, unable to turn on their lights, as they feel the list to starboard gradually increasing. Now, a survivor, Svetlana Sayenko, a waitress on board the Nakimov, describes the initial shock of the incident, saying, 
also dining staff found us and started yelling, get up, the ship is sinking, the ship is sinking. We all started laughing and we thought it was a joke. In the documentary that you know we'll include in the show notes um, that Jamie referenced earlier called Save Our Souls, it's available on, on YouTube. It, it does have subtitles, but I don't think it has English subtitles that I could see. I, I, I saw, I tried to see. And um, it's it's a great documentary. It, it's it has a lot of you know survivor accounts. And yeah, that that interview with um, with Svetlana Sayenko is really interesting because you can you can kind of hear her explaining like you know this is not something this is not something we thought could happen. You know, someone tells you your ship is sinking. In, in this case, you know, you're out on this sort of vacation cruise, and your first instinct is to think, oh, she's she's joking, she's pulling my leg, and that was not the case. Now, passengers were seen jumping into the pitch black ocean, filled with oil, as lifeboats couldn't be prepared in time. And chaos would rise, as passengers panicked in fear and confusion for seven long minutes, until the ship went down. The documentary notes that neither the first, nor second, nor third class passengers were briefed on the location of lifeboats or life jackets even though this was always done on board the Nakimov. For some reason, on this final voyage, Captain Markov had not given the crew this order. Now, quoting from a Russian website, On that terrible night, everything was mixed up. Villainy, hardship, the truest heroism and self-sacrifice. Stewardess gave away their own preservers, knowing full well that they doomed themselves to death and they perished. People were drowning one after another, even those who were in life preservers because they had been worn incorrectly, and some lost their nerves. Starting to flounder desperately in the water, senselessly wasting their energy, and eventually they also went down. Some drowned, choking on paint and fuel oil. When I read this, I was thinking that must have been a terrible death. A lot of that, you know, a lot of our stories obviously tend to happen when it's dark, you know, in the middle of the night. And that just sort of adds to this sort of chaotic scene of, you know, not just not just drowning, but then also what is in the water with you. Um, yeah, just real chaos. Pieter Vasev wasn't fatally damaged and would assist in the rescue efforts. Other ships would arrive around 10 minutes later and a total of 64 ships of various types and 20 helicopters rushed to the scene. Despite the rapid sinking of 1243 on board the ship, 407 died. But it took over 19 hours until the last survivors were pulled out of the water. Now, the final survivor was pulled from the water at 18.0 on September the 1st. Among the dead was also Major General Krikonov, who along with his family had been responsible for the initial delay in leaving port. When I, I kind of got to this part, I originally found this part in one of the articles I was reading, because there's there's quite a lot written about this in general, and especially in the Russian sources. And his name came up in several of those sources. And it just seemed like one of those very like sensational stories. And it reminded me a little bit here, uh, you know, before we talk more about uh, Krikunov, I wanted to take a quick jump back to way back to episode 16 of the show 
when we talked about the Lake Victoria ferry Bukoba. Um, so Bukoba sank in 1996, and that had an official death toll of 894. Those of our listeners with a very keen memory might remember one of those people on Bukoba was Abu Ubaida al-Banshiri, the number two man in Al-Qaeda at the time. Whoa. So after that sinking, there were, you know, reportedly at least, Al-Qaeda had a little bit of concern. They kind of sent some people to investigate and make sure, like, was this an assassination? Mm. Like, was this engineered to get rid of this guy? So there was some concern there that this had been a targeted attack, but there was re- there was just no evidence for that. It was just, uh, at least for them, bad luck. Back to Admiral Nakhimov and Major General Krikunov. This was interesting because it it led to this speculation of kind of something similar, that this accident had been engineered specifically to eliminate him. And kind of on the surface, I sort of was skeptical of mm. that uh, right away. It just seems like that's a very big production to eliminate one person. There was this rumor that, you know, he had documents. He had these documents in his cabin on the ship with, you know, compromising, incriminating uh, material on individuals, you know, really, really high up in the Soviet power structure. Um, and in that documentary, uh, the filmmaker Lebedev, he, he pretty firmly rejects this idea and kind of for very sensible reasons. He says, I absolutely don't believe that journalistic canard. So he's, he's calling fake news here. That because of Krikunov, a whole ship was destroyed. It could have been done completely quietly. You know, the ship waited for him 10, 15 minutes. What if he hadn't gotten on? So, yeah, there's just a lot of moving pieces here, just needlessly complicated. I mean, we there's historical precedent for the fact that, you know, the Soviet Union has no real problem quietly getting rid of someone. He could have an accident. Anything could happen to him. This is a a really convoluted plan if you just want to eliminate one guy. Also thinking about if if it was a plan to eliminate him, what about all those innocent souls on board? Exactly. And it's like, sure, there's there's historical, you know, accidents and, and oversteps that, you know, governments have taken to eliminate people. But this seems a bit extreme to, to, to kill this many people. Again, just for the possibility that maybe you eliminate the guy you're trying to kill because easily he could have gotten off. He could have survived. Anything mm. could have happened. I, I think that's a it's a pretty out there thought process to to think yeah. that that was the case. Agreed. Another reason for the rapid sinking of the ship was because the ship's ventilations were out of commission, resulting in more than 90 portholes left open in the cabins, which contributed to the sinking. So here again, we have a kind of um, same situation with the HMS Britannic. Mm-hmm. Her portholes were also left open, which also helped very much in the sinking. I was trying to think. I, I knew that we had covered one where that happened, and I just couldn't remember which one it was. But yeah, the, the Britannic. Many of these bodies were recovered by teams of military divers. The dives on Anakimov continued until September the 19th. On the 19th, however, tragedy struck again. Two divers were killed while attempting to navigate. One suffered an issue with his diving suit and became stuck inside the ship. And the another diver attempted to rescue him by cutting through the hull, but was unsuccessful. 
Attempts at recovering bodies from the ship were suspended. The sinking of the Admiral Nakimov was a tremendous tragedy on its own. But also think of the historical context that this happens in. This is August 1986. The Soviet Union is still recovering from the Chernobyl disaster in April. That I had not made that connection in my head until very late in you know in what I was reading. And one one of the articles mentioned that I was thinking, wow, like that is two really huge tragedies, kind of one after the other. I mean, especially as it does relate to, you know, telling this story about what happened and then uh, the people receiving this news and thinking, oh, wow, like this is this is a lot of stuff. And, you know, can I can I believe the official story about this? Is, is this what happened? You know, there, there's some trust issues there, too. Mm. Now, the initial news conference of the incident was sparse. Fyodor Lebedev, documentary, also one documentary director, demonstrates with a copy of the newspaper Truth. Here is one of the most popular newspapers. It gives information on the catastrophe, not on the second or first page, not even the third. They first mention it on the fourth, no, the fifth page tiny little note in a corner with the condolences. After the sinking, the government formed a commission of inquiry into the investigation of the sinking and who was responsible for the sinking and loss of life. However, shockingly, the inquiry determined that the captain of the Pyotr Vasev, Viktor Chachenko, and Admiral Akimov, Vadim Markov, had not followed proper safety protocols to avoid the sinking. In reality, the Pieter Vasev was at fault. Here as the ship ignored orders to slow their ship, despite multiple warnings sent by Nanakimov. And only did so when it became clear. Not only that, the ship didn't report the incident 40 minutes after it occurred. The only reason the captain of Nanakimov was convicted was because he had left his second officer to the bridge. I was just going to make a connection here with um, the second of the HMAS Voyager's collisions, the one with the U.S. vessel Frank E. Evans. We had a similar discussion um, here. This was on a bonus episode that I um, that I did actually with my wife, Katie. That has since been released for everyone, by the way. But in that situation, we had you know the captain of the Frank E. Evans leaving the bridge, you know, for his normally scheduled, you know, off time and leaving two officers on the bridge who weren't qualified um, or in a position to to be in command of the bridge. And he told them, he says, if you do anything, if you change course, if you're requested to change course, if you see anything, if you hear anything, wake me up. If you are curious, should I come get the captain or not? come get me. Mm. So we had that that moment where he still left people in command where he could have been in charge. But again, that was kind of a different situation. We we know why he was leaving the bridge there. Whereas I, I don't know in this case, I don't know if we do know why Markov left the bridge. I think I saw in the documentary, uh, it was because he went dining or he went to the disco, checking on passengers, <laughs> pulling the the good old trick of representing his crew and himself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, the, both captains were sentenced to 15 years in prison and both were released in 1992. 
the sentencing part of this was interesting. It was it was mentioned a little bit in the the articles and the documentary where at least initially, I, I don't know how far this went in the sentencing process, but there was the possibility that both of them were going to be shot for what they had done here or what, what they were responsible for. And obviously that got reduced. Some leniency was shown there. And then, yeah, obviously in 1992, there's a lot of stuff going on in the Soviet Union or the the former Soviet Union. I thought I saw that they were kind of just sort of caught up in like a general amnesty a lot of people being released for various reasons. Now, Vadim Markov, the captain of the Nakimov, died in 2007 after a battle with cancer. His opposite number in this story, Viktor Tachenko, met a slightly stranger end. After gaining freedom, he emigrated to Israel, took his wife's family name and became Viktor Talor and returned to sailing this time around on private vessels. On September the 8th, 2003, off the shores of Canada, a yacht went down in a storm. It had been traveling from Boston to Europe. Three bodies were recovered from the wreck. Among the dead was one Victor Talor. He is buried in Tel Aviv. That was such a, a strange twist to, to end the yeah. story of like a I don't know like a mystery novel or something you know this this guy kind of not disappears but he moves away changes his name but tries to you know stay in generally the same the same industry you know he still wants mm. to be on ships and you know probably is mostly forgotten about um ex- except possibly by the families themselves mm. and then yeah to have it end that way you know he 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 still ends up losing his life in a shipwreck but you know halfway around the world under a different name. It's a very odd little little anecdote here. I did want to mention the um I know Jamie you mentioned the you know the divers you know diving on board this ship and suspending operations to to find more bodies here. You know, and obviously kind of like what we talked about with the Fitzgerald, just naturally some of them are still on board where it lies. Somewhat like the Fitzgerald, uh, the wreck itself is designated, you know, as a grave site. It's considered to be a common grave for all of the the people on board who who were not recovered from it. I did just want to point out an interesting linguistic note here, uh, just the terminology that we use across languages. You know, in in English, we would call that you know a common grave or or maybe a mass grave. The Russian term for it is is a little bit more poetic, and they call it a bratskaya magila, literally a, a brother's grave. Mm. And I feel like it kind of gives this sense of uh, togetherness, but it also it, it does, I think, give a sense of individuality also. Uh, the, the English terms we use almost treat, they, they almost treat the people like material. This is just stuff that's down here. Um, whereas I, I feel like the Russian term kind of does capture the fact that these, these were people um, who have relationships um, and, and individual lives. So just mm. a small thing I wanted to point out because I thought that was really interesting mm. when that came up. I agree. That's the story of Admiral Nakhimov. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of details just due to time and and um, you know research requirements that we weren't able to really cover. But um, there's there's a quite a bit of uh, you know reading material out there on mm. Admiral Nakhimov. Yeah, it was a story. I was I was like I had heard of it, but I really didn't know much about the sinking of it. Also, wanted to point out early in my research, I got very 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 confused. Because I have never seen 
a ship name that is applied to this many different ships. Yeah. The the fact that there's been like what like five or six warships uh with this name, there's this passenger vessel with this name. Initially I was reading some stories and I was like that that doesn't sound right. And then I <laughs> realized that's a diff- that's a totally different ship. So yeah, uh fascinating reading um and and great to hear from, you know, someone who has so much experience talking about shipwrecks um and just the wealth of knowledge here to apply and um to bring on the show any final thoughts uh to wrap up on admiral nakimov i think personally in my opinion she der- she deserves to be more known because this is a tragic sinking and i feel when i was doing my research it's mostly known in russia it's not that well known outside of russia unless you're a ship enthusiast like me or yourself you know if you actually do your research you wouldn't know that um, there was a ship, like you said, Amonakimov, which actually actually sank with mm-hmm. so great loss of life. So I wish or I hope that maybe in the future there will be a good producer who will be like, maybe let's make a world-known documentary about her or a mm-hmm. book. But uh, for now, I think it's a tragic story. I fully agree. You know, it, it would be great to see this sort of picked up and, and shared in a way that is... Um you know, accessible and, and, you know, obviously well done and, and something that really respects the, the source material. Yeah. Doing the research, I realized that if you're looking at this from a, from a purely Western perspective, you know, in your search, like there's not that much out there about it. Um, you know, if, if you can cross some linguistic boundaries, like there's a little bit more available, but yeah, like it's, it is, very sad that that's not more widely known, you know, outside of Russia and Ukraine, you know, a lot of a lot of the people involved are, you know, Ukrainian in in background. If you watch the uh, that Save Our Souls documentary, a lot of the people they interview have very clear Ukrainian accents mm-hmm. um, when they're giving their interviews. But yeah, I mean, as as always, with all the stories we cover, uh, they, they are things that we you know, we care about preserving. And, and, you know, we're glad that we have the opportunity to sort of work with other people to do that. So, yeah, I'll just say, you know, thank you, Jamie, for coming on the show. We'd love to have you back again. Thank you very much for having me. Use some more of your brain power to talk about these wrecks. <laughs> um, I did want to wrap up here and just say, you know, thank you to all of you for listening. And um, Taylor and I will be recording a bonus episode for August. Uh, we'll be recording that tomorrow. We are going to watch a movie. I think we agreed we're going to watch U571. I think that's what we agreed on. We're going to do another submarine movie since we loved The Wolf's Call so much. Mm. Aside from that, I think I will leave things here. If I've forgotten anything, we will reach out on Twitter and let you know. But yeah, thank you all for listening. Thank you, Jamie, for coming on the show. And we will talk to all of you again next week. Thanks for listening to another episode of Beyond the Breakers. We love hearing from listeners, and if you'd like to get in touch with us, there's a couple of ways you can do that. We're on Twitter at Beyond underscore Breakers. We're on Instagram at Beyond the Breakers Podcast. Our email is beyondthebreakerspod at gmail.com. And we do also have a Patreon set up for the show. That's patreon.com slash beyondthebreakers. Money from the Patreon just goes back into making the show, covers things like web hosting fees, research materials, 
the occasional hardware upgrade to keep the show sounding as good as possible. We appreciate all of the support in any way it comes. The simplest way to support the show is just to listen and share it with your friends. Other ways to support the show include leaving ratings and reviews. Ratings and reviews really help us. They help the show stay visible. They help more people find the show and they make us feel good. So any of those ways you can support the show is greatly appreciated. Until next time, take care.